Welcome to episode 46 of FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, here together in Washington today with my colleague Natalia Bailey. Natalia was a lead author on our recent Machine Learning and Credit Risk second edition report, together with Dennis Ferenzi. And today we're going to talk about the key findings from that report. We're also doing something a little different in that we have a guest on the phone with us today for the first time on FRT. So we're embracing the opportunities of technology, but not exactly as early adopters. On the line from Toronto is Paul Edwards. Paul is the Director of Data Science and Model Innovation at Scotiabank. He's been a leading contributor to the IEF's machine learning work and a great mentor on this subject for Natalia and myself. And similarly, Scotiabank has been a leader in this space more broadly. You may recall their CRO, Daniel Moore, joined us on FRT a year ago, way back on episode eight. Paul, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. My pleasure. Natalia, before we bring Paul in, let's touch on the highlights of our report. We surveyed 60 firms, being 59 banks and one mortgage insurer from around the world. And this was the second edition, meaning that it followed a similar survey report that we published back in March 2018, and which we discussed on FRT episode three. So over that time series, it gives us a great, a great basis for comparison and the emerging trends where banks are adopting this technology. So if we can, let's start with the headline numbers from the survey. What was especially noticeable? Thanks, Brad. If we talk in terms of overall maturity, we have seen a modest increase in firms using machine learning in production from 38% in 2018 to 42% this year. But we have seen a significant increase in the number of firms that are using machine learning in pilot projects. That has increased from 20% in 2018 to 45% this year. So if we combine both categories, we see that there has been an increase from 58% in 2018 to 85% this year. And I think as well as that headline of the increased use of or the increased prevalence of banks launching pilots, there's some interesting findings around the the use across different customer segments. If we look back a year ago, it was quite noticeable that we had this, this kind of bimodal distribution where there was a lot happening in the retail space with mortgages and credit cards, and quite often there where banks could use supervised learning techniques on where they had large pools of existing structured data. There was a bit out at the other end of the customer spectrum in the large corporate and wholesale space where external news services, for instance, could be mined for early warning signals uh, on deteriorating credits and the like. But there really wasn't much happening in between in the SME space. And I think that's been one of the noticeable things to emerge from this report, that there's been a lot of progress in that SME segment. You're absolutely right. There still is a use of machine learning in the retail and corporate sectors. However, we have seen a dramatic increase in the number of firms that are using machine learning in the SME sector. It was 8% in 2018, and it's now 40% in this year's results. If we go beyond some of those headline numbers, uh, what stands out for you, Natalia, in terms of some of the emerging trends and themes more broadly across the survey? I think it's important to note the benefits and challenges. So even though there's only been minimal changes in terms of benefits, firms continue to see increasing model accuracy as one of the main benefits. Um, Also, the ability to overcome data deficiencies and inconsistencies and the ability to identify new patterns in the data and new resegments. However, in terms of challenges, to me, the most surprising thing was the increase on the supervisory aspect of understanding or consent of new processes as the number one challenge that came up in this year's survey. And that was a very dramatic increase in comparison. It has risen by more than 430% in just one year. And I also wanted to note 
Although we've only seen a modest increase in the number of firms are using machine learning in production, the sophistication, how they're using machine learning has definitely changed in the last year. They are now using machine learning across multiple segments, and they're also covering several functions of credit risk. So they are looking at how they're being used in data cleaning, in feature extraction, data exploration, segmentation, model development, and model validation. And that ties in with increase that we've seen in the SME sector, where we've seen that those financial institutions are using machine learning in production, have expanded the use of machine learning to additional portfolio types um, and SMEs. I do want to pick up the, the point you make there, Natalia, about the supervisory impact, and, uh, and I think that's a theme we should explore. But let's bring in the practitioner now and, and bring Paul into the conversation. Paul is one of the 60 contributing firms to this and, and very much a, a leading source of insight on each of our machine learning papers and surveys. What resonated for you in the report? Were there any findings that you found surprising or particularly noteworthy? Yeah, I mean, I'll echo some of what Natalia said. I thought that was a good analysis. It just is an exciting time for machine learning and credit risk. There really aren't any institutions now that are saying that they have no plan to use machine learning. I believe in your last report in 2018, there were 10% who reported they had no such plan. And now it seems that the organizations are racing to explore machine learning. There's a big increase, for example, in those firms who are using ML in production or as a pilot now, relative to the 2018 survey. That stood out to me. I think it was fair to say when I was reading the report that the euro area seemed to be leading the pack in that respect. It was actually only in the euro area where the majority of firms reported that their ML techniques were in production, which is quite an exceptional number to see. Thank you, Paul. Let me just add, yes, we've seen that across all geographies, the increased use of machine learning. And if we compare it to our 2018 survey results, where we saw that there were a significant number of firms that were not even started using machine learning, they just had a plan to, and then there were several that didn't have any plans. So your your takeaway there is really uh, significant. If I can perhaps add another geographical comment, yeah, one area that I think is noticeable here on the trend is, is in Japan. And in our earlier study, there was a relatively small or slower take up in Japan. And we have seen that gather pace and perhaps you know, catch up more to be in line with peers around the world. And it is noticeable that the, the supervisory posture there has shifted as well. The JFSA has been looking for ways to help promote and encourage innovation in risk management within their firms. And it seems to be bearing fruit. Right. The other thing that struck me was that I think the institutions seem to be settling in on what pillars they find machine learning most useful for like credit scoring, credit monitoring, and collections really stood out in these survey results. And interestingly, we, we had a new category for other, which I think you mentioned was primarily fraud and cybersecurity. But I think as these firms have experimented more in the pillars where machine learning is applicable, they've kind of settled on those three to be the big ones. Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's a good segue to our next question. Could you talk about the continued evolution of machine learning in finance and in credit risk more specifically? Where do you see the industry heading? For example, do you foresee banks and other financial institutions using more deep learning techniques or reinforcement learning? Yeah, for sure. I'm not sure how long we have on the podcast, but uh, I'll totally give you my highlights. One thing that struck me from the report and in my own experience, honestly, is that boosting and particularly XG boost does seem to be a dominant technique. And I speak about its application in banking, but that's broadly true. You know, colleagues of mine who are doing machine learning in other domains like health and other sorts um, are, are finding the same thing. It's an easy technique to use and it, it's tough to beat. 
what we've found in some of the, the patterns that are emerging in our, our use of XGB and uh, similar techniques are where there's thousands of features that are engineered a priority, which is a common place to find yourself in, in the model development space. And when the target to be predicted is a single target, like a binary target or a continuous target, but single, then boosting is generally going to yield an excellent model that's going to be tough to beat with other benchmarking techniques. And I include deep learning in that. Deep learning appears to excel when the feature space is gigantic, moving from you know thousands of engineered features up into the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, or where the raw data can be ingested directly, where the feature engineering doesn't have to be done a priori by data engineers or data scientists, but where the deep learning layers can do that feature engineering itself. That's another place where you'll see the performance of deep learning really stand out from the pack of other techniques. And the other thing that those techniques are good at in particular is where the target is more complex. Like rather than predicting one single value, you could train these models to predict a sequence or a vector. And where your predictions are more complex like that is another place where I think deep learning can really stand out from other techniques. But in general, XGP is just an excellent off-the-shelf technique. And I think all the banks are finding that. You asked about reinforcement learning specifically. It's a very interesting technique. There's a few obstacles to its application, I think, in credit risk. One being that it requires rapid feedback for an action. So it's trying to test and learn, and it's basically running experiments. And so in like a delinquency model, it needs to wait you know, for several months before a default is realized in one of its experiments. That can hamper the rate at which it learns. It can really hinder the algorithms. The other thing is that it is, in fact, running a live experiment on customer base. That's something that's just going to require you know, careful controls and careful governance to be in place. The model could end up doing some strange things just to see what would happen, which might have an impact on the customer experience if not managed appropriately. The report highlights two approaches that I think are going to be important in this domain moving forward. First is automatic recalibration, which is distinct from reinforcement learning. It's simply a matter of periodically refitting a model that's in production. Of course, this is something that I think all firms would already do. But there are a few ways that machine learning could improve upon that. Then also, you mentioned the report how some firms are experimenting with new data. Obviously, improved data and alternative data are going to complement improved algorithms and new algorithms. And uh, I think there's a lot of future in that. First is firms can simply buy alternative data and feed that into the model and, and see how it performs. But I think also you, you kind of allude that some firms are finding that some of these new machine learning techniques are, are better able to process large data, especially better able to ingest semi-structured or a little bit unstructured data from like news sources for corporate or like transactional data from customers that was previously just sort of hard to incorporate into a model. Um, we touched on the supervisory element earlier. And Paul, I think this is one of the key takeaways of the report really was that the level of supervisory understanding and perhaps the consent to use new techniques that this had really dramatically increased as a challenge or perhaps as an implementation barrier for banks. I'm interested in whether you find that to be surprising at all. And perhaps if I can offer one hypothesis, you know, perhaps is it just a reflection that in the same way that banks' sophistication and maturity with these techniques has been increasing and improving, 
but so it has been for the supervisors as well. And perhaps the supervisors now are a better place to be asking the right scrutinizing questions. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. I wasn't surprised because I've heard this concern from my colleagues, but I agree with you. I think it's just a result of more banks adopting or experimenting with machine learning and starting to ask some more sophisticated questions of their regulatory bodies. My impression is that regulators are open to the use of machine learning. I just think that they want the banks to think through it carefully, which we should do. I mean, banks have to solve the same regulatory problems. They have to meet the same, you know, basic governance, repeatability, monitoring, explainability thresholds that they would for any model. The technique maybe is less relevant. And so if if we can show the regulators that we can still meet these requirements and we can still use these techniques in a responsible manner, then it's, uh, it's less important which technique we use, perhaps. So I, I don't think the regulators are, are closed to the idea by any means. I really look forward to IIS upcoming paper on the recommendations to regulators. Thank you, Paul. And that ties into just a, another question that we have there. Are there any particular things that we need the supervisory community to develop or continue with? I think we need to come prepared with some suggestions on that. I mean, as a practitioner here, I need to be able to sort of draw a box around which techniques are going to be suitable, which are going to be, you know, regulatory compliant. And then we can work within that box. That's that's fine. Or maybe there's some techniques that under certain settings are going to be too complex to use or or whatever. Um, we just kind of need some of that structure. And I think any of the practitioners who are doing this at any of the financial institutions are able to kind of put together their opinions on that. And they can put together from their own experience, you know, what works and what doesn't and what produces something that's a, maybe a bit more trouble than it's worth and what doesn't. And I think we can come to the regulators with some of those suggestions and with some of that experience to help them understand what it is we would like. And then I think we can work together to see how some of those favored techniques are going to fit into the governance structures that they expect from us. Like, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, around repeatability, the ability to monitor these techniques to see if they don't go off the rails, etc. Thank you, Paul. You know, Scotia has done a lot of work on explainability of models, and you've been a leading contributor in that work stream, including the cases study where you contributed in our explainability and predictive modeling paper that we published last November. In our new survey, explainability is no longer the number one challenge for banks. Is that because we are getting better at it and overcoming that challenge? What do you think is the, the reason why? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. There are a lot of techniques to explain complex models. We've done some of that work ourselves, and, and there's loads of other contributions from the academic community and, and, and such. It's really a hot area of research right now. There's techniques like LIME and SHAP and partial dependency plots. I think you mentioned a lot of these in the report. I think since, since, since the firms are reporting that they're using machine learning more, but that explainability is no longer one of their top concerns, I don't really think explainability has ever gone away. I would conclude instead that a lot of their internal clients and external partners are finding that the explainability techniques that are available are satisfactory. I don't think it's really a conceptual problem anymore. Now that the firms are really digging into it and, and you know using these techniques, I think they're able to work through what it looks like to explain their models. And it seems as though people are finding those explanations 
to be good enough. So thank you, Paul. Uh, we appreciate the insights you've provided to us at the IAF on an ongoing basis, and especially here on FRT today. A lot of great points. And if I can just highlight a small subset of those that you've made. Firstly, where you picked out that the survey indicates the progression with really uh, a negligible level of the industry now not having any plans to adopt machine learning. That's really a key finding in itself. And it's one that Natalia and I probably overlooked and, and didn't emphasize, but I'm glad you call that out. And I think it's a, a significant finding in and of itself. The point you made that the boosting techniques really have emerged in a dominant, and in particular XGB, but also I, I like the way that you emphasise that this is common to what's seen in, in other industries and, and health as one example. Uh, we often look to health as something of a comparable sector in terms of being a regulated industry and having a similar emphasis on the sensitivity and ethical use with data. So it's an interesting point in itself that there's a, a commonality perhaps uh, across our sector and, and health. The opportunities with incorporating new sources of data, and I think this is where we've seen a number of firms that are excited with that opportunity, but also it underlines some of the known and existing challenges around how you manage and integrate that data, the challenges of ensuring that you can get your data all into one single data lake. And we'll talk a lot more on future FRT episodes about some of the developments in cloud technology as well. And lastly, the point about the improvement in, in the maturity on the part of the supervisor, common to what's been happening at banks. We often make the point that with these new technologies, such as machine learning, that there is really a shared journey being undertaken by the industry and their supervisors together. Paul mentioned our upcoming paper on machine learning recommendations for supervisors, and we'll be completing and publishing that in September. So, Paul, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on FRT. Thanks for having me. I lastly just want to reiterate that 60 firms were very generous in their time and their insights in contributing to our survey, and we thank each of those 60 firms, including Scotiabank. The public version of this report is available on our website. A more detailed version is available only for the 60 participant firms and the supervisory community. Looking ahead, we'll have discussion panels on the specific topic of machine learning in finance, both at our annual membership meeting here in Washington on October 18, and also at our Digital Financial Inclusion Summit in Cairo on November 7. And lastly, if we look ahead on FRT in the coming weeks, next week we'll be joined by Michael Brett of QBranch and we'll talk about quantum computing. You may recall that Michael joined us on episode 37 as part of the debrief of our Digital Finance Symposium and he's going to return to talk in more detail about quantum. We'll also look further at Facebook's Libra development, including specifically some of the currency implications as well as the digital identity element. And a little further ahead, we'll talk with some of the great guests that we have coming for our annual membership meeting in October including Hugh Van Steenis on his recent Future of Finance report at the Bank of England. Please tune in again for those upcoming episodes via the IAF website and on all podcast apps. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for joining us on FRT.